0: So how are y'all doing tonight, huh? Are you doing well? Hey, I got some really good news. Uh, Avengers Endgame came out on iTunes, like you can buy it on iTunes now. I'm so excited. I get to watch it with my kids and watch them cry. They're not crying because of the movie, they're crying because they realized I'm their dad. Uh, No, I'm just kidding, that's terrible, right? Why are you laughing at that? What's wrong with you people? Good night. I'm really glad you're in church. Uh, anyway, um, before we get started, uh, let's go ahead and pray real quick, because we haven't prayed enough, right? Amen? Okay. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Jesus, I pray that you would, um, you would just speak to us tonight, Lord. You would guide our thoughts, Lord, and uh, just help me be um, clear in what you want me to communicate. Lord, uh, we give you the right to change our thoughts and our attitudes. We give you sovereignty over our minds and hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. Speak to us. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Psalms. That's pretty much the middle. And we're uh, we're opening to Psalm 133. So just, you know, count your blessings. We're not reading Psalm 119, right? Bible nerds, you get it. No one else does. All right. So I just learned Kai often needs to read their Bibles. Amen. Okay. So how many of y'all are pumped for dorm move-ins, huh? Hey, if you're not there, you're a nerd. You don't want to be a nerd, right? Dude, I love dorm move-ins. It's always great when a guy like me walks up and I'm like, hey, I see a guy and I'm like, oh, that dude probably needs help. And I'm like, hey, you need help? And it ends up like it's his sister that's moving in, you know? And the dad's like, sure, you can carry the dorm fridge to the top of Concho Hall. And you're like, and like, for me, that's death anyway. um, Okay, so everyone's got their Bible apps or whatever open. I think we got it on the screen. All right. So, Psalm 133. Really short. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So... We're going to talk about fellowship tonight um, because I believe it is the most powerful weapon that the Christian that a Christian has. It's not knowledge of scripture. It's not anything like that. It is how well you love one another. That is the attractive force of Christianity. In fact, when, when the Christians were being martyred in the Colosseums in Rome, the thing that converted people wasn't preaching or anything they said at the time. What they said is, look how they love one another as they threw themselves in front of each other to be devoured by lions or or struck down by gladiators. The crowds would say, look how they love one another. And my prayer is that those freshmen that walk on campus that we meet on dorm move-ins see something in the way that you treat each other in your small groups. And they say, look how they love one another. And that is so powerful, right? Because who doesn't want to be a part of a family? Who doesn't want friends? I mean, just rewind the clock. For some of you, it might not be like 18 years ago like it is for me. But, you know, it might be 18 months ago for you when you were a freshman, right? And you set foot on the campus terrified. Remember how scary that was? So when, when I started school, uh, when I enrolled at Sam Houston State, I actually didn't even know where the university was. I had never been that far south. Okay, and so I literally, this was before you even had GPS on your phone, right? So I had to like go on my computer like a Neanderthal and type in like maps.com, right? And print out pages, you know, so I'm like some kind of Stone Age man, like looking at paper while I drive. Who does that, right? I didn't have a phone to talk to me. Gosh, it was like the Stone Age. I don't know how we made it, right? I didn't know where the place was. I knew one person. That was it. And that was the guy that I was uh, rooming with, right? So, do you remember that feeling? Okay? And then do you remember the feeling of when you met your small group leader? When you met that person that just pulled you in and they loved you. And you noticed how everyone loved one another. Do you remember that? Don't you want that for somebody else? All right. So, unity is the main point of the passage, right? Of Psalm 133. And what we see here is how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Right? Sorry for the masculine language in here. You know, but just, you know, substitute whatever pronouns you need. But unity seems to create this special atmosphere. Remember, we've been over this before, right? The Bible, whenever it shows an image, right? It's there for a reason, right? Um, We'll get this eventually. Um, So... Oil is always representative of the Holy Spirit, right? And Aaron is representative of the priesthood. And it says that whenever we live in unity, oil flows over the head of Aaron, unto the edges of his robe, over his beard, all of it. You know, beards are especially blessed. Amen. Let he who can do. Um, so when we live in unity, the Holy Spirit comes upon The priesthood. And we know from the book of Hebrews that we are all priests. We are a kingdom of priests. Amen? So, when we're in unity, God pronounces the blessing of life. Right? He sends dew, he sends oil, the Holy Spirit in life. Those two symbols. Right? So, unity seems to create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can move. Right, And when we look at what the Holy Spirit can do, or what he does, it seems to be all of those things that we feel like we should be doing as small group leaders or Christians, right? Y'all tracking with me? So what are the jobs of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? It's a rhetorical question, so put your hands down. Because so many of you had them raised. Man, are y'all tired? What's going on? Y'all seem kind of uptight. Y'all Relax. Hey, turn to your neighbor and give him a high five. All right, the other neighbor. Somebody got left out. There you go. See, it's okay. So some of the tasks of the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit reveals where and how to work. You ever think, Lord, where, where do I go? Who do I talk to? You don't have to find that out. The Holy Spirit does. Right? Jesus says, the son sees where the father is working and goes there also. Jesus didn't have to be a detective. He just had to find the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit reveals who Christ is. Right? This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, Simon Barjona, but by the Spirit of God. Right? So if you're ever thinking, Lord, how do I convert this person? How do I talk to them about Jesus? How do I get them to understand who Jesus is? You don't right? The Holy Spirit does it, right? It is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin and righteousness. So many times we want to be the person to strive and fight to tell people how they should be living, right? But it's not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And trust me, when God does his job, he's better at it than you are, right? The Holy Spirit, his name is paraclete, which in Greek means comforter. So when your friend is hurting and sad, it's not you that needs to comfort them. It's the Holy Spirit. Right? All these things we cannot do, but he can. Like my hero Winky Prattney says, make it easy on yourself and hard on God. So our task is pretty simple, to live in unity. Right? If we live in unity, God does all the work. Like Isaiah sixty one eleven says, For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's not us. It's Him. So our only cr- task is to create unity. But then that begs the question, right? You're all thinking this because y'all are three steps ahead of me, right? How do you create unity? Well, there's three key components because I'm a preacher. And we all have three points in our sermons, right? Amen. Church kids didn't even think that was funny. I'm shocked. Come on, guys. We'll get y'all to react sometimes. At some point, y'all will begin to react. I promise. I'm going to keep making terrible jokes. Okay? Anyway. Okay. (laughs) I love the sarcasm. Thank you. The three things that we need for fellowship, for unity. Love, honor, and fellowship. Love, honor, and fellowship. So we're going to talk about the first component: love. All right. The story goes that John the Apostle, John the one whom Jesus loved, was carried in on a, on a cot during his last days in front of his church in Ephesus, Turkey, and was laid down in front of them to deliver his final message. And his message was simply this: "Love one another. Love one another, my children." If we love one another, that is enough. And if the man that wrote, what, how many books of the Bible? Five books of the Bible thinks that, then maybe we should too. Love one another, love one another, my children. If we do that, it is enough. So we're going to talk about the word love. Okay, do you all know? that the Greeks had more than one word for love? Right? That's kind of important. In English, we just have, like, love. Right? And I can say, like, I love, um, I love Snickers candy bars. Right? And then I love my kids. Right? But if I love them in the same way, something's horribly wrong. Okay? Either I'm a cannibal or a horrible parent. I love leaving my children in the car and watching them melt. Whoa! Anyway, I told you, I'm going to keep going until you react. (laughs) The Greeks actually had four words for love. The first one was storge, which was parental affection. Storge, parental affection. So the way a mom loves a child, storge. Okay? The second one was eros, which you can figure out on your own. Okay? That's mommy and daddy love. Okay? The third one is Phileo, Brotherly Love, right? And that's where Philadelphia gets its name. Phileo and Delphi, Brotherly Love, City of Brotherly Love, right? Which it is not, by the way. If you've ever been there, it's terrible. Don't ever go to Philadelphia. It's almost as bad as the time I had to spend six hours in Newark, New Jersey. Oh, gosh. Anyway, on my deathbed, I'll be wanting those six hours back. Okay, so we got sorge, eros, phileo, and then the word that the Bible uses to describe God's love, agape, or agape, depending on what emphasis you put on what syllable, right? I'm going to keep going. I'm so tired of preaching to stone faces. I'm going to get you to laugh. Okay, so agape is this word that was just plucked out of obscurity. Right? If you go outside of the Bible and look for the word agape in any of its forms outside of the Bible in the greater Greek lexicon or literature, you only find it used 13 times. That's it, just 13 times. Right? And the first instance we have of its use is around 800 BC when Homer wrote his poem, The Iliad, which you've all read, of course, right? Because you've been in high school. Great story. Everyone loves it, right? Good story. Anyway, you should read it. So he used the word to describe the armies of Troy lining up in battle against the armies of Greece. And the word meant wondrous or astonished. Right? He was describing how they looked. It was wondrous or astonishing to look upon the armies. Right? And then, as time goes on, we see that it begins to mean to prefer right? To set one good or aim above the other, to esteem one person more highly than another. So what what the word agape means is that there's something about the other. There's something about an object or a person. There's something essential, innate to it that demands a reaction in you. Just like when you're looking in wonder upon the armies, it demands you react in awe. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? So this word that Paul and John use in the Bible, over and over and over again, they're trying to say there's something essential about the other that should, you should hold in high esteem. There's something essential about the other that demands reaction in your heart. Does that make sense? So, agape is a love of preference. It's a love of choosing It recognizes the worthiness of the object loved. And that's why we say love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another. Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another. And that's what love is. But I want to let you in on a secret. There's something that love does. Right? What love does is it seeks a need in another person's life and meets it. And that's what we're going to do during Ram Week. We're going to go and meet needs and win people's hearts. So you may have heard it said, love finds a need and meets it, right? But I don't know, I'm a nerd about words, if you can't tell already. And the problem with finds is that sometimes you find a penny on the ground just by walking, right? It's an accident. But because of the nature of the word agape, we know that there's a demand of action upon you. Does that make sense? And so love requires that you look for needs in other people's lives because you value them highly. Does that make sense? Second thing, honor. So uh, I'm going to confess something to you. Um. My wife and I are really, uh, I think the word's basic. Is that still cool to say? I don't know. Was it ever cool to say? We like Chip and Joanna. Right? So my wife constantly feels the call of Mecca, also known as the silos in Waco. Right? And she like prays that direction five times a day. No, I'm just kidding. We're not that bad. We love Chip and Joanna. Right? We don't love their prices on things, but we love them. Right? Well, I think... It's interesting that they really struck a nerve, right? They seem to really like channeled into something, right? Not just like shiplap, right? But there's something, that, there's something about what they do that people find appealing. And if I can venture, I think it's this. I think it's that they have a, an ability to see through the crud to see what is possible in a house, right? And I think that's fun to watch right? Because so many of us, like me definitely, like I, I, I don't see that stuff, right? I'd walk by a house and be like we should probably burn that down, right? <laughs> but Chip and Joanna like walk in, they're like, no, 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 open concept, granite countertop, shiplap and everyone's like, oh my God, <sighs> my mind's blown, right? And that's what happens, right? Well, I think in spiritual terms, we would call that honor, right? To honor something is to see through the crap and see what's really there and what's possible. My favorite author, E. Stanley Jones, says, amen, says, honor is holding a crown above someone's head and watching them grow into it. See, it's really easy to be a cynic. And I can say this wholeheartedly because it's my biggest struggle. It is so easy to see what's wrong. Just like you walk by that broken down house and think, just bulldoze it. But it takes skill. It takes skill and discipline to see through the crud and see what's possible. That's what honor is, right? So um, another thing that I know you have heard me say often is um, God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective, Right? Y'all heard that? No? Okay, God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective. Okay, and so what that means is that when God's telling us something, when he's giving us instruction or telling us how to live, he's not giving us rules so much as he's describing how things are. Right? So when he's like, hey, the soul that sins, he shall die... It's like saying, yea, verily, I say unto thee, if thou, if thou casteth thyself off of an exceedingly great height, thou shalt accelerate towards the ground at 9.8 meters per second per second. And when thou strikest thy head against the ground, thou shalt be paced. Amen. Right? That's what that is. Okay? So it's a description of reality. Right? So one of the things that God tells us not to do is not to gossip. Not to gossip. So he's describing reality, right? Because what gossip does is, one, it ruins the people that you're talking about, right? It just hurts so bad. Have you ever had somebody bad you behind your back? But it also destroys you because you get a reputation as a gossip. And guess what? No one wants to be your friend. See what I'm saying? It's a description of reality. But the funny thing is that almost all sin... It's just a perversion of what is good and noble and true. So did you know that you can gossip for the kingdom? I think it's an essential component of honor. Have you ever heard somebody say something cool about you behind your back? And just made you feel like a million bucks? So this happened to me probably the first time that I can ever remember it. It wasn't until high school, so that should tell you something about me. Um, Either I have a bad memory or I'm a terrible person. You pick. Um, but so I had this dream, right, that, that I was going to be a football player. Yeah. 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 So I was really good at warming the bench, right? And I never got on the field. I was terrible. I'm not an athlete, okay? I'm just not gifted like that. Um, but every practice, I'd be out there working, 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 Right? And since I never got on the field, I had a lot of time on the sidelines with the younger guys. And I just talked to them about the plays or about what Coach was trying to do. And I remember one day, I was sitting in my locker getting changed after practice. And my friend sat down next to me and he goes, Hey, yo, you know what Coach Peavy House, the secondary, he was my coach for the secondary, because he definitely wasn't a lineman, right? He's like, do you know what Coach Peavy House said about you? He said you're not very good. But but you're like having another coach on the field. Man, all of a sudden everything that I did had dignity. All the sacrifices I I had honor. See, and that's what honor does. Now, he didn't ignore the fact that I could not play football, right? That was acknowledged. That he didn't even have to mention it. In fact, I wonder why my friend mentioned it at all. But, but he shined a light on what was good and noble and true. He saw through the crud and saw what was possible. Right? And before I got saved, my goal was to be a football coach because of that statement. See, because honor is not flattery. Honor is not putting on rose glasses, rose-colored glasses. But honor is shining a light on what is true. So when you're godly gossiping, it's like talking about somebody like, hey, I see that you're into board games. My friend Ryan, for some reason, loves them. I don't understand, but he loves them. You should go hang out with him. Honor. Right? Or... If you're in somebody, with somebody, talking to somebody, just tell them why you're grateful for them. Honor them. Does that make sense? And without this, whatever small group you're a part of, whatever any social group, it doesn't matter, small group in Chi Alpha, church group, work group, it doesn't matter. You will not have cohesion and healthy relationships without this. Because it's a principle of the kingdom. It's a principle of reality. Is that y'all tracking? Okay. Lastly, fellowship. And I pulled a sneaky on you here. There's actually four points to this one, so uh seven-point sermon in your face. Don't you feel silly, Ryan? There it is. It got you to laugh. Okay. That's been my goal the whole time, dude. You've just been solid. Alright. Can you hold it now? Can you can you hold it? You good? Okay. <laughs> So we say there's four C's to fellowship, which is kind of a cheat. I'm sorry, um, because, yeah, you'll see. So we say that fellowship, the four C's of fellowship are constant forgiveness, common understanding, common unselfishness, and common purpose. It's a bit of a cheat. Constant forgiveness, common understanding, common unselfishness, and common purpose. I need to go through them one more time. You got them. Oh, they're up there. Praise God. The biggest headache in the kingdom of God is unforgiveness. In fact, the biggest danger to any Christian is unforgiveness. The greatest threat to the emotional and psychological health of any human being is unforgiveness. You cannot look through the annals of history. You cannot look across society. You cannot think of any friend that you have that has unforgiveness and see a positive outcome. Unforgiveness is the headache of heaven. In fact, God is so serious about you being forgiven that he says, the manner in which you forgive, you shall be forgiven. See, here's just a fact, right? We're trying to love one another. We're trying to build this unity so the Holy Spirit can live. You know, that's like the water he swims in. You know what I mean? We're, we're fighting for this. And then because we're stupid and broken, we're going to hurt each other. We're just going to do it. It's going to happen. Right? And grief is proportional to intimacy. So the closer you are to somebody, the more they're going to hurt you. Right? If some bum on the street calls me a jerk, I'm like, hey, whatever, who cares? You're probably right. Whatever. Right? But if my wife says that to me, that's a whole different ballgame. See what I mean? Grief is proportional to intimacy. So, what do you do? There's two main ways, I think, that people get hurt. The first is bitterness. Now, bitterness happens when someone does something to you. Bitterness happens when someone does something to you. Right? We've talked about this before, actually. Anybody remember the hurt circle? The bitterness cycle? Do you want to run through it again? Because I have it in my notes. All right. So with the bitterness cycle, with the hurt circle is what we call it. If you get hurt and then you don't forgive, what inevitably happens is that unforgiveness and bitterness begin to take root. And the first thing that you do is you begin to openly rebel against anyone that reminds you of the person that hurt you. So if mom and dad hurt you, you'll rebel against authorities. If a friend hurt you, you'll drive all people away from you. Does that make sense? But man was not made to live alone, right? God said it's not good for man to be alone. So you got to look for some kind of fellowship, right? It's just innate. It's a part of who you are, right? And so you look for people that are hurt like you. And those are the only people that you will let in. So first you build defenses and drive people away, and then you open the gate just a bit to allow people to come in. But those people that come in, they got to be vetted, right? Got to make sure that they're hurt like you. And then it becomes some kind of sick competition in your little social circle. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have dealt with this before or are dealing with this now. you got to kind of lay out your street cred about how hurt you are, right? Oh yeah, well, my dad hit me three times. Oh, well, my dad hit me five. And then if people that you open your gate to, they start to come in behind the walls, but you don't think they have enough cred, you drive them away too. And guess what? You hurt them. And where you set out saying, I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to be like that person that hurt me. You become a person that hurt others. And the cycle begins again. And it's insanity. That's bitterness. When someone does something to you, and you don't forgive. But there's two main ways. I believe that the second way that people get hurt, is actually the bigger threat. At least in our current culture and climate. It's called offense. Offense. An offense is when someone does not do something for you you expected them to. Offense is when someone does not do something for you that you expected them to. First, I want to make a little side note here. Unmet expectation always leads to frustration. Unmet expectation always leads to frustration, 100% of the time. But what you must do is make sure you're expressing your expectations. Hey, just, if y'all are in a relationship, pay attention to that. Express your expectations. Right? Right? So what happens with a fence is someone doesn't do what you expect them to. So you begin to process in your mind why. And inevitably, where you land is they must not think I'm worth it. They chose something other than me. Now, it doesn't matter if you've told them you expected it or not, but that's your thought process, right? So the greatest example of this from the Bible is Judas. See, Judas, he, um, he had this idea of what Jesus was going to be like. Right? He thought that Jesus was going to be this conquering king. Have you all heard this before? So at the time, actually Pastor Landon preached about it on Sunday. He touched on the concept. Right? At the time, they had this idea of what the Messiah was going to be like. That the Messiah was going to come in and free them politically from the Roman Empire, right? And he's going to set up an eternal kingdom when Israel would be free and proud and strong. But that's not why Jesus came, right? But Judas in his head, right? What he's seeing is he has this idea of the Messiah in his mind. The Messiah is going to be like David or like John Maccabees, right? These liberators of his country. And that's what he's thinking. And so when he sees Jesus do all these miracles, right? He sees him feed 5,000 people with like a Lunchable, right? Right? Wow, okay, we don't have to worry about provision for our armies. When he sees people get healed, wow, nobody's going to miss time on the battlefield because Jesus can heal them. And imagine what must have been going through his head when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Wow, death can't even beat us. Right? And so then they get to Jerusalem and Jesus starts overturning tables in the temple. Yes! Yes, the Messiah king, right? He's a king and a priest. He's claiming authority over the temple. Next, he's going to claim authority over the throne. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus starts talking about being crucified and killed, which doesn't line up with what Judas thought. And so Judas goes, You know what? At least this is what I think, because Judas wasn't a dummy. Right? They gave the money bag to him. Right? So he, he couldn't have been a dummy. And he couldn't have been like some evil guy in the shadows twirling his mustache. Right? You don't give that guy the money bag. It's like, yeah, see? Here, take the money. Like, no. Right? He was probably one of the best disciples. He was probably the smartest. He had the money bag. Right? But Judas, with this idea of what God was supposed to do in his head, begins to have a disjunction between what he wanted and what he expected and what Jesus actually did. So then he thought, you know what? I'll force it. I'll sell him out. And then when the temple guard and the Romans come, he'll have to reveal himself in power. 20 pieces, 30 pieces of silver, that's nothing. That's nothing. Why do you think he greeted Jesus with a kiss? He was excited. Like, oh, Judas, thank you so much. You helped me remember what I was supposed to do. Here, sit at my right hand. That's what he expected. And then Jesus didn't meet his expectations. And here's the scary thing. When bitterness is your pain, when bitterness is your thing, you want to hurt others. But when offense is your thing, you kill yourself. And that's what Judas did. God didn't meet his expectations. God offended him. And so he killed himself. Bitterness, you harm others. Offense, you harm yourself. How many people can you think of that are struggling with suicide because of Offense. My mom and dad didn't love me like they were supposed to. My friends don't care about me like I think they should. I've been in ministry long enough to know that's the number one reason. Offense. So the only way out is forgiveness. How do you keep yourself from becoming a monster or destroying yourself? Forgive. 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 The first step back to Jesus is always gratefulness. Y'all tracking? Common understanding. Common understanding. So what I want to say here is that this is not common agreement. Common understanding is different from common agreement. I got a story. Okay, so most of y'all know I was a missionary in the Czech Republic for two years. Okay? So like the first day we're there... Our landlord came over with some people at 6 a.m., even though we had just gotten off a plane and we were jet lagging hard. They were like, we won't be there till 9. They came at 6. Like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Anyway, but one of the guys that came was a guy named Milan, okay? Milan, not like the Italian city, but Milan, he he was appointed to handle all of our electronics, right? Program the VCR, he had to do it, right? Turn on the TV, that's Milan's job. You know, set the clock on the microwave, Milan, right? I couldn't do it, Milan had to, right? Milan spoke zero English. We had been in the country for nine hours, we spoke zero Czech, right? So Milan and I had an agreement that for two weeks he would make Wi-Fi at my house. I don't know what Wi-Fi is, and frankly, I don't want it at my house. Milan, if you're going to make Wi-Fi, do it at your house, right? So for two weeks, he came over to make wifi at my house, okay? And so, like, we're, like, communicating with pictures. We're scratching stuff on notebooks, drawing. You know, it's like Egyptian hieroglyphs or something, right? And we just can't, like, that's how we're, we're struggling to communicate. Then the last day, my wife is saying, yeah, we're going to take Czech classes, you know, like, study Czech. And he goes, uh, he says, I speak, I speak Czech, uh, Nemetsko. Now, I know enough Czech to know that Niemetzko ne- is the Czech word for German, which was a language that I spoke. For two weeks, we could have been speaking German, right? So I was like, Du kannst Deutsch? He's like, Ja, yeah, ich kann Deutsch. I'm like, "Ah, oh, Sie sich! Wir haben Kaffee! <laughs> <laughs> Wir sprechen zusammen? Das war wunderbar. Right? And so for two hours, we talked in German without problems. We had an agreement about making Wi-Fi, but then we had an understanding about what Wi-Fi was. It was Wi-Fi, okay? Didn't involve the bathroom, which was my big fear. Right? So we went from an intellectual kind of level to a heart level. And that's what common understanding is. To be in fellowship together, you need constant forgiveness and you need common understanding. Your hearts have to be on the same level. Does that make sense? I've heard it said common understanding is mutually bowing your hearts and minds to God in His reality. Common understanding is mutually bowing your hearts and minds to God in His reality. Number three of the four C's is common unselfishness. We just said that love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another. I shouldn't have to spend much time on this one, right? If you really love someone, you will seek a need in their life and meet it. And it requires all of us to do that towards one another. See how they love one another. There was this uh, terrible screaming rapping band, New Metal. Um, Y'all were probably in like third grade when they came out. But uh, they were called Lincoln Park. (laughs) Right? Um, Thankfully, I never thought they were cool, so I don't have to be embarrassed. Right? But the lead screamer, I don't know, Uh, his name was Chester Bennington. Right? He killed himself. But right before he killed himself, about two weeks before, he gave this interview at a radio station. I think it was in Arizona. And he said, I only ever felt normal when I was focused on other people. I only ever feel normal when I'm focused on other people. See, you were never designed to be the center of your own life. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you're made to be. And until you walk in reality, you'll never feel right. Chester Bennington learned that and chose to ignore it. Our hearts and souls were made to be generous and selfless. So when you act in such a manner, you are more real than you've ever been. Does that make sense? The last thing and the band can come up Common purpose. Common purpose. In order to have real fellowship, you must have constant forgiveness, common understanding, common unselfishness, and common purpose. You see, the depth of your purpose will determine the depth of the relationship. If you have friends where all you do is hang out and talk about video games, you're really not that great of friends, are you? And once the video game gets boring, the friendship gets boring. Maybe that's a little bit too dude of an example. I don't know what a girl example is. like. Maybe you just paint toenails together. I don't know how this works. So what purpose is there greater than God's kingdom? The reason why some of you can sit in here and say, I've met the best friends that I've ever had in my life Is because you have found a purpose to join together that's greater than anything else you've ever had in your life. That's your purpose to build God's kingdom, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater purpose. John 17, verses 19 through 21. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Right, This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is before he's taken away to be crucified. He prays this prayer. He says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, pay attention to this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Purpose. What is the purpose of your friendships? What is the purpose of your small group? So that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by God. Until you find that purpose, you will not find true friendship. Friendship. So, I want to challenge us, as we go careening into the next school year, to love one another. If we love one another, that will be enough. And I promise you, you will watch it. The better you love one another, and the better you love those freshmen that walk on the campus, and your fellow students in your class, the better that you love them, the more they will come to Jesus. And no longer will you be exhausted by striving and trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. No, you will have unity and the Holy Spirit will do his job and he will convict of sin and righteousness and he will reveal who Jesus is in their hearts and in their minds and they will come to Jesus and the kingdom will grow and heaven will be more beautiful because we'll have more brothers and sisters with us. Isn't that what you want? It's what I want. It's why we're here.